Seth, uh, you write in your book, Lynchpin, that uh, it is a book that couldn't have been written 10 years ago. What has changed over that time in your mind? Well, you know, David, the uh, economy, as we know, it's been around for a couple hundred years. And so all of us grew up with a pretty stable view of what was happening. You got a decent education. You got a decent job. You worked in that job for a long time, following instructions, doing what you were told. You became a member of the middle class, and then you could do it with your kids. And what's changed in the last decade is that the Internet has added a new layer to our economy and at the same time created a revolution that's destroying the old one. And that layer is about uh, connection and leverage and the ability for individuals to have much more of an impact than they used to. At the same time that factory owners, industrialists, people who need to hire a lot, can go further afield to find cheap compliant labor to do what they're told. And so when those two things collide, what you end up with is that people who are good at complying, people who are good at doing what they're told, are now undervalued compared to what they used to be. And people who are willing to go out of their way to make a difference have more tools and leverage than ever before. You argue, Seth, that schools have been set up to support an outdated model. Uh, where workers, as you say, are uh, required to simply follow instructions. That no longer works today. So with college uh, graduates uh, leaving our institution and trying to, uh, to find work, trying to use their education, um, what words of advice would you have for them? How should higher education change to support that new world that you talk about, that new world of work? Well, you know, I want to start by saying that just because you spent your family's life savings on college doesn't mean you're entitled to make a living. And getting over the sense of entitlement is a really important first step. You know, that for a lot of people, college is just four more years of high school, but with binge drinking involved. And I think it's very important to understand that if all you've done is treated college as an extension of high school, where you take harder courses, but basically do the same sort of work, you are not prepared for what it takes to excel today. And what it takes to excel today is to be willing to get a job that didn't used to exist, to be able to solve problems that people didn't even know existed, to uh, make your own map as opposed to following someone else's. And over and over again, we see that the people who are doing that are the people who are happy and successful, whereas there are other people, the ones who are in stress, the ones who are still unemployed a couple years after graduating, the ones who can't get around the fact that that job that should be available isn't, those people are stuck because they're busy complying instead of leading. It makes sense, Seth, that uh, being remarkable is the, uh, the path to success. That makes perfect sense. But how does a young person start out? Um, we've got an incredibly competitive job market, bad economic times. How do they get that first job? Uh, how do they find that platform for their life? Well, you know, first I want to call out part of what you said. I don't think it makes perfect sense. And I think your mother-in-law or your parents or your friends probably don't believe that being remarkable is the best way to have a successful, steady career because they're part of the system and the system has told them, don't do that. Uh, so that's why my advice had to be, uh, I had to say that first because my advice is going to strike people as being insane. I don't think you should get a first job. I think the first job is now the hardest to get and the least valuable. I would skip the first job and just go do something, whether it's selling stuff on eBay or starting a small organization or uh, inventing or working with a nonprofit that really makes a difference. Mostly, it's doing 
work where you create value despite the fact that you have no credentials. And the way you bootstrap into that is by using the leverage that the internet and others provide and just doing it. And then, only then, if you still want a job, should you go look for one. Is inherent in that idea, Seth, uh, finding what you're passionate about, finding uh, your signature strengths? Well, I think that inherent is that it, inherent in that is being passionate. It's not clear to me that your DNA says you're passionate about one thing or another. I think if Yo-Yo Ma had never seen a cello, he would still be an extremely successful person because he decided to be dedicated and passionate, not because the cello in particular means something. So what I'm challenging people to do is first decide to be passionate and then let the details take care of themselves. You've already kind of answered this question, Seth, but I'd like you to to hit it specifically. Um, you have the perspective that resumes are really not that important in the marketplace. Um, you would encourage us to really kind of see that as something not valuable. Could you explain your position on resumes? Well, I'm going to go further. Uh, they're actually dangerous because they send a signal to the employer that you should be treated as a giant cog in the system and that your resume should be folded in with everybody else's and processed in the same way. A resume is a printed document that proves that you are compliant. It is a list of well-known brand names and job titles that can be scanned and keyworded and called upon at will, which will be probably never. Uh, I think you, if you refuse to have a resume, you will be forced to be known by your work. You will be forced to be known by your references. You will be forced to be known by the impact you've made on others. And if you do that enough, then people will find you. You won't have to go find them. I know, Seth, you're a professor at NYU. Um, I'm interested in how you approached higher education. Uh, what kind of projects and exercises did you assign? How did you approach grades and the trappings that often uh, begin to, uh, to hurt us in academia? Well, I had 60 students in my class of MBAs, and the deal from the first day was no tests, no homework, no exams, 100% class participation. And as a result, I failed several people because a deal's a deal. The uh, outcome was this. In every class, which lasted about two and a half hours, I spent about an hour outlining uh, a situation in the world, bringing in data that I was aware of uh, or problems that I saw. And then I challenged the class to speak for the rest of the time, putting ideas out there, challenging each other, uh, leveraging other people's ideas, leapfrogging, and coming up with uh, a plan. That sort of work was alien to these people who were already on uh, years 17 and 18 of their uh, education careers. No one had ever challenged them to do that. And my point is, if you're not willing to do that in the safety of a classroom, what makes you think you're going to do that when you get to work? What advice then, Seth, would you have for students as they, they feel they need to be on some kind of plan? They need to pick a major and, uh, and use that as the as a path to, uh, to exit the university and find success. How do you feel about uh, picking a major uh, in today's interdisciplinary world? Well, you shouldn't go on a path just because your parents want you to. Uh, you shouldn't go on a path just because it looks like that's what IBM wants. I think that there is a very good reason to major, which is that if you can actually become an expert, not just do the minimum for your major, but do the maximum for your major, know more about it than anyone, you've made it through the dip. Getting through the dip, doing that extra part, the painful part, the part that scares other people away, is always valuable. 
The alternative, which is what I did, which I also encourage, is to take more courses than anyone else in as many different topics as every, everything else. Learn how to look at a field and get it quickly as opposed to doing what the herds do, what the masses do. Because if you have the ability to diagnose an industry, to get the sense of what something is about, then it doesn't matter what the next topic is, you're going to do fine. You state that uh, being pretty good is not enough, that we need to be remarkable. Um, and Seth, can, can everyone truly be remarkable? Or will some people naturally be left behind in this scenario? Well, you know, this is really important. And I think you've heard me talk about this before. But I'm not willing to write anybody off. I'm not willing to write off a baby in the maternity ward. And I'm not willing to write off that kid in kindergarten who's not good at coloring. And I'm not willing to write off that person uh, who's got a D average and is about to flunk out. Because sooner or later, one day, they might sit up and say, I am choosing now to be passionate. I am choosing now to give gifts and be generous and make a difference and have an impact. Because what this is about is not what you're born with or your DNA. What this is about is the choice that you make. And we have seen people of every age, in every country, of every nationality or caste or race, stand up and choose to make a difference. I'm not saying there are more hurdles, there are, that everyone has the same hurdles. Clearly, some people are born with more hurdles than others. But it's wrong to say that someone's never going to mount anything. We've been taught, uh, Seth, that this myth of consumption, uh, consumption is a path to our happiness. It's certainly in our country. What specific social structures would you suggest that uh, would create a better life that would enrich the lives that we have? Well, you know, marketers get paid to create dissatisfaction, not satisfaction. If we create dissatisfaction and say that the problem can be solved by buying something, then often people will turn around and buy it. So as long as marketers are getting away with that, and as long as it works, they will keep doing it. So it's going to be up to individuals and families and spiritual leaders to figure out how to uh, reward people for something other than going to the mall and how to create cycles and settings where we enjoy what we've got as opposed to what we don't have. Uh, last year, United States citizens spent $6.6 .6 billion on self-storage facilities, more than $6 billion storing stuff we didn't have room for. So it's not that we don't have enough stuff. It's that we haven't made the, the conceptual and spiritual shift to uh, embracing what we've got. Now, I know you've traveled, Seth, and uh, have just come back from India. The perspective that you got from a place where consumption is not uh, that a big an issue in their life, in fact, where there's extreme poverty, how uh, and what did you learn from those uh, those encounters? Well, first, they're not related. There are people in extreme poverty who consume or would like to consume. But what we see in a lot of indigenous cultures and a lot of uh, cultures with a long tradition to them is that consumption wasn't part of the deal. And so if you grow up in a household where it's not expected that you're going to have more tomorrow than you had today and where the focus is on something other than what can I buy now, what's amazing is that you're more likely, not less, to be happy. And the reason is because no one has sold you on this cycle of dissatisfaction. So there's nothing inherent in the human condition that makes us need the next big thing. Uh, clearly, Apple Computer and others would love it 
if we were completely dissatisfied until we had the next big thing. But I'm not sure that that's a choice we all have to make every day. Demographics are changing, as you know, Seth, and soon we'll have the largest elderly population in human history. Uh, what does the linchpin message that you hold uh, give to this group? Well, you know, a lot of seniors, particularly those that lost their nest egg during uh, the recent economic uh, follies, are going to be in a, a bit of trouble. They are easily exploited by corporations, and they're going to find themselves working for three, four, five, six, seven, eight dollars an hour, probably online uh, in some sort of sweatshop situation, being compliant. Uh, the alternative, which is available to them, is because they have confidence and because they have wisdom, there's an opportunity for them to step forward. And instead of saying, what job do you have for me, uh, Mr. Uh, young whippersnapper prejudiced hiring manager, they could in fact step forward and say, I'm going to make something, I'm going to do something. And the leverage of the internet, the ability to reach customers directly, the ability to assemble tribes of people and create value is greater than ever before. And it knows uh, no boundary of race or age or gender. Uh, as the old cartoon says, on the internet, nobody knows your dog. A tribe uh, of other writers uh, with compatible visions appear to be forming, Seth. Uh, Daniel Pink, Tony Shea, just to name a couple along with you. What are the common themes in your work? Well, I think that we each come at it differently. Dan comes at it from a brain science point of view. The books he's written uh, are inspiring because they're so obviously true and so straightforward. He, uh, every time he and I agree, it makes me happy because it means I'm on the right track. Uh, Tony came at it in a totally different way. Tony said, you know what? I'm going to take the ideas of Seth and people like him and take them to an extreme. And I'm going to put them to work. And he did just that. And Zappos used customer service as a tool for remarkability. He took it farther than even I would have expected. What's super about it is he used it to turn a shoe store into a billion dollar company. And those two words don't usually go in the same sentence, shoes and billion dollars. And it's sort of proof that this model does work and it does scale and it's out there. And now Tony is being so generous in in visiting campuses and talking about um, his vision for how things can work. Finally, Seth, uh, a last question. I'm creating a set of uh, 10 commandments for this course, a list, if you will, that articulates a unique approach to higher education I'm hoping to foster. Uh, I've asked everyone that I have uh, spoken to, to if they could add one commandment for today's university classroom, what would it be? And I'm interested in what your commandment would be, Seth. Um, when in doubt, ignore all the commandments. All right. Well, Seth, thank you so much for your time. I'm deeply in your debt. It's, it's appreciated. Have a good class. See you.